There can be few things more irksome in life than building a large puzzle only to come to the very end and suspect that a piece is missing. You only suspect it. You can't be quite sure because you first have to scour the room high and low, searching in futility for this missing piece until you finally come to the awful truth that the piece is missing. Either it's been eaten by a small toddler or a dog, or it's been put into another puzzle box, or it's carried off by some member of the family, or maybe it's just hiding temporarily only to pitch up at a time you don't need it. Either way, very frustrating. It's frustrating, but it's ultimately of very little consequence. You want this puzzle to be finished, but you can still appreciate the picture. You can still see what the picture is, even without a piece. But there is a Latin phrase which speaks to a piece without which the whole enterprise becomes meaningless. It doesn't make sense. And that phrase is sine qua non. Sine qua non, or not without which. So basically, this refers to something without which the whole affair cannot stand. It doesn't hold together. So for example... The key is the sine qua non of a safe. So a safe is useless without the key. You might call the battery of a cell phone the sine qua non of the cell phone. Without the battery, the phone can't be a phone. Or the water in a swimming pool. Without the water, the pool's not much good. Well, if you aren't already there, you can turn with me to the book of Mark in chapter 10, where I hope we'll be able to spend some time considering the sine qua non of the kingdom of heaven of eternal life. Mark chapter 10, we're going to read just from verse 17 to verse 22. Mark 10, 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So we have this familiar story of the rich young ruler. It's familiar, and yet there is much here to challenge us and convict us, and I trust that God would send his spirit this morning to do just that as we slow down and dig into this fertile ground in this passage. Notice right at the very outset that this man of status, this rich young ruler, comes to Jesus and he addresses him with what was probably meant as a very complimentary statement or a greeting of respect. And Jesus, instead of accepting that, he, he right away draws attention to the use of this man's, this man's use of the adjective good. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is not saying that he was not good. Of course, he's not saying that. Jesus is the only intrinsically good person ever to walk the face of the earth. So he he wasn't saying that. But rather, right off the bat, Jesus is setting this guy up to see the issues more clearly. I don't know how Jesus knew 
But somehow Jesus knew that this guy had a heart problem. He had a heart problem. And his heart problem essentially came down to this. His idea of what constituted a good person was far too simple. His idea of what it looks like to belong to God and to be his servant, to belong to him, was woefully inadequate. And so immediately Jesus draws attention to this ruler's use of the word good. Jesus might as well have said, no, my friend, you are using a term you know nothing about. Your idea of what makes a person good is far too small. A teacher of the Bible is not automatically good. An eloquent speaker is not automatically good. A church member is not automatically good. Even a revered person like Mother Teresa is not automatically good. You see, this young ruler thought that he was good himself. He wasn't referring to Jesus as good because he recognized him as the spotless Lamb of God given to take away the sin of the world. No, he was addressing Jesus as a peer, a fellow good man, an equal. This guy had no idea of what good meant in the eyes of God. And then Jesus does something rather unexpected. This Jesus who came to earth to make salvation available by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Christ alone, this Jesus then doesn't point to that. He says, what are the commandments? What do they say? He starts listing the commandments that this guy should keep. Isn't that strange? Do you think Jesus was suggesting that this ruler should focus his energies on keeping the commandments? That he should try and attain perfection according to the law? Why would Jesus do this? We see the ruler affirming these commandments. He knows them. He, he's kept all of them since he was young, he says. Or at least he thinks he has. You see, this guy still doesn't see it. He still thinks he's a good man. He's basically like a successful businessman who wants to go to a conference just to get the edge. This young ruler really wanted to ensure that he had all of his spiritual insurance policies paid up. But once again, Jesus is wisely setting this guy up. Just like Jesus wanted to expose his faulty conception of good a little earlier, so now Jesus begins to uncover for this rich young ruler the pride that lurks in his heart. Verse 21 says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And love tells the truth. Love doesn't do that which makes the other person comfortable here and now. Love has a person's ultimate good in mind. Love will do what is necessary to ensure that a person is not only happy and comfortable now, but he will be for all eternity. And therefore, love must speak the truth. Jesus loved him, and Jesus spoke the truth. And he said, one thing you still lack. One thing you still lack. And I'm convinced that this is a truth that Jesus would speak to many of us sitting here today if we were to ask him that same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So many have squeaky clean lives on the outside. Many in this church have grown up in Christian homes, attend church regularly, but you still lack one thing. Jesus wasn't interested in this guy's money. He wasn't even primarily concerned about the poor. He said in Mark 14, 7, the poor you will always have with you. Jesus was concerned about this man's heart. 
his heart. Jesus wants your heart. Jesus loved him. The Son of God incarnate loved him, and he wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He isn't interested in external obedience. He isn't interested in religion or the ticking of spiritual boxes. Jesus isn't interested in being someone's insurance policy. He isn't interested in being a spiritual parachute, a spiritual safety net. When unbelievers reach heaven, God will turn them away saying, Away from me, I never knew you. Jesus is not concerned about what we do. Our good works are like filthy rags before God. And the reason that Jesus is not concerned about what we do is that everything that we do is tainted by a sinful heart. All of our works are tainted by a heart which values other things above God. A heart which values other things above that which is most valuable. God is great. Have you ever thought about the fact that God is perfect? Nothing in this world is perfect. Nothing. Whenever we speak about something being perfect, we're always speaking in hyperbole. We're always exaggerating to make a point. But God is perfect. Perfect. Exodus 34, 6-7 reveals who God is. The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is perfect. And we have been made to worship and represent this perfect God. Just like a tea, teacup that's trying to dig a trench is going to be very unhappy. It's going to have a hard time. We are like that teacup trying to dig a trench because we've tried to run away from our God-ordained, God-created purpose. Nothing will satisfy us. Nothing will fill the God-shaped hole that is in our hearts. When we sinned, we separated ourselves from our God. We lost our relationship with Him. We became like those teacups trying to dig a trench. But God gives us Himself in the gospel. Only He is enough to fill us. Only He will give us joy and purpose and pleasure and fulfillment. And so God wants our hearts because He knows that's what we need. He also wants our hearts because God's not interested in servants who only obey to avoid trouble. They only obey because it's in their best interests. God wants a relationship with us. And He doesn't simply make us His servants. No, He makes us His children. He makes us to have a relationship with Him. Like a father with his beloved children, He wants us to be intimate with Him. To know Him. To belong to Him. To know His smile and His approval and His joy and His love. He wants our hearts. Matthew 6 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so this is the reason that Jesus told this rich young ruler to sell his possessions. It, it wasn't because Jesus was anti-wealth. It wasn't because Jesus wanted this man to self-flagellate and to prove his loyalty to him. No, he was interested in this man's heart. His full, sincere, and undivided love. Jesus looked into his heart and he saw where his treasure was. 
He saw that for all this guy's good attributes, he still loved himself first. He still lacked one thing. Only one. But it was a fundamental thing. It was the sine qua non of eternal life. It was crucial. It was ultimately the only important thing. He lacked a heart for God. And the same is true today. And so I want to ask you, with all the seriousness in the world, with all the concern in the world, teenager who's grown up in this church and who sits apathetically each week after week, listening to each successive sermon, each successive grace group, what one thing do you lack? What do you lack that is preventing you from bowing the knee to Jesus? What is it that holds you back? What keeps you wasting your time playing video games into the early hours of the morning? What keeps you on social media scrolling endlessly? What keeps you going to the gym and working on that perfect physique? What is it that makes you desire to fit in so much socially and neglect your soul? I'm so concerned for you because I don't know when your soul will be required of you. It feels like you're going to live forever. It feels like you have all the time in the world. But like the rich man who was building his barns to, to store all of his wealth, God may say to you, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. You're wasting your life. Every sermon you hear, every grace group you sit through, every family Bible hour lesson you sit through, Every song you sing is heaping up judgment on you. One day, God will ask you, saying, I gave you so much light, so much truth. You had so much knowledge. It was like the Israelites who asked for meat, and they had so much of it, it was coming out of their nostrils. They were sick of it. Why did you keep fritting your days away with vanity? What did you lack? Family. Those who know the Lord, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, what one thing do you lack? What keeps us from giving ourselves to God, from serving Him with abandon, from loving Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? What keeps us so interested in sports and in food and in the latest movie and in work and politics and gossip and reputation? What do you lack? When you were first saved, you couldn't get enough of Christian teaching, of Christian fellowship. You would pray to the Lord. You had joy in your heart. You were ready to live and die for Him even. And yet there may have been a coolness that's crept in. Sometimes you may have been aware of it, and other times you may not have been aware of it. But then you looked again and you found yourself living just like your colleagues at work or just like your friends at school, lacking joy and lacking purpose and zeal. What is it that you still lack? What is it? What is it that is keeping you at arm's length from God? What is making you love Him just this much? You're willing to come to church. You're willing to sing the songs. You're willing to read your Bible. But your heart's not in it. Your heart's not excited by the things of God. You can't remember the last time you felt sorrow over sin. You can't remember the last time you sang or worshipped Him with abandon. You don't know what it means to trust Him, drawing your strength from Him. 
your significance, your identity, you forget to pray. Reading the word is a slog. Friend, what do you still lack? I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what you still lack. Just like this rich man, your treasure is still in the wrong place. Your treasure is here on earth. You're committed to yourself, to your comfort, to your reputation, to your rights, to your convictions, your hobbies and your lusts. Your treasure is here on earth. It might not be physical, material things, but it's here all the same. I know this because I know my own heart. I know what it's like to be lukewarm towards God. I know what it's like to be stone cold toward God. To hear the truth and feel nothing. And whenever it's happened, it's happened because my treasure has not been in heaven. It's been here on earth. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, the Christian life is all about treasuring that which is truly valuable. Valuing that which is truly valuable. Glorying in that which is truly glorious. God gives us himself because that's the only thing that will fit. It's the only thing that will fill us. He is the only truly glorious being. Anything else which could be treasured can be nothing but an echo, an insubstantial shadow of reality. It gives us about the same satisfaction that speaking about food does compared to eating it. The Christian life is all about treasuring God. Augustine wrote in his Confessions, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. If your heart is restless, it's because it's not finding its rest in God. I'm not saying you're not saved, although examining your heart is always worthwhile. What makes a person a child of God is when God has changed that person's nature. When he's taken out your heart of stone and he's replaced it with a living heart of flesh. And that change of nature is going to change everything. There's no way that it can't. So we can't only be interested in a prayer prayed sometime in the past, in the distant past. It's not a prayer that saves you. It's Jesus. Are you looking to Jesus? Jesus calls you to repent and to believe in him. Well, what are you to believe? You are to believe that you are a sinner in a hopeless mess. And that God has sent his perfect lamb, the spotless son of God, in the place of sinners. And so you stop trying to please God. And instead you recognize that Jesus has already done that on your behalf. If you say, God, don't look on me and my failings. But I agree that I'm wretched and miserable and pitiable and poor and naked and blind. But I see Jesus. I see Jesus who is everything I am not. He is Everything I cannot be. And if you cry out to God to look on Him rather than on you, to remove your sin as far as the east is from the west, He will do it. He will make you then into what He has declared you to be. He'll make you into a holy person. He will not only forgive your sins, but He'll remove them. He will not only show you His glory, but you will experience it. So perhaps you you need to be saved. I don't know. But I do know that Jesus didn't intend for us to sit around whiling away our time just like the world. So I'm not saying you're not saved. 
But even Christians can lose focus. Even soldiers get comfortable in the camp when they're in a war zone, forgetting they're in a war zone. So what do you still lack? The rich young ruler thought that he wanted eternal life. He, he wanted to inherit eternal life. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we all want eternal life, don't we? I mean, it sure sounds better than eternal damnation. And yet, this rich young ruler didn't know it yet, but he doesn't want eternal life. At least not the eternal life Jesus is offering. And I feel that far too many of us are in the same position. Yes, of course we want eternal life. We want heaven. But do we? Do we? What makes you think that you want heaven when you can't get through a church service without yawning in boredom? What makes you think that you want heaven when you spend as little time in prayer as you can manage without alarming your conscience? What makes you think that you want heaven when you can't stand being with those who you'll share heaven with? What makes you think that you want heaven when you're so taken up with the things of the world? Do you really want heaven? Probably not. In our current state, our corruption runs so deep that it's affected everything. Sin has affected us to the very core of who we are. And this is why no man can see God and live. Have you thought about that? Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the cool of the day, we read. They could see God and they could live. Why can't we see God and live? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because our corruption has made us incapable of it. We're physically incapable of being in the presence of God. But the good news is that through the regenerating work of the Spirit, through the Spirit's subsequent sanctifying work in our lives, we are being made fit for heaven. We're being made fit for heaven. Just like someone is made fit to run a marathon, so we are being made fit for heaven. Right now, you may not like heaven a whole lot. You haven't yet learned to treasure the things which you ought to treasure. You still need to learn to value things which are truly valuable. You still need to acquire a taste for heaven. Not because heaven is a strange taste, but because our tongues have been so warped and twisted by the acid of sin that we don't know how to recognize a good taste. We need to be rehabilitated. Just like the man who is in a car accident who needs to learn how to walk and talk and read and write and see and feel and hear again. That's the process of sanctification, being rehabilitated from our sinful fallenness. Brothers and sisters, do you want that? Do you want that? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good enough to ask him to do the painful work of rehabilitation in your own life? Are you willing to go through the physical therapy of the soul to leave your wheelchair and walk again? It looked like Jesus was asking a lot of this young man. We read and we think, gee, I'm glad he hasn't asked me to do that. To sell all our own and give it to the poor? Thankfully, he was teaching a lesson. The thing is, compared to following Jesus, selling everything and giving it to the poor is nothing. Compared to following Jesus, selling everything and giving it to the poor is like that man in the parable who sold everything because he knew of a treasure buried in a field. And if he could sell everything and buy that field, he would have so much more than he ever gave up. In Jesus, there is everything and more that he calls you to give up here and now. Jesus calls us to give up the things of the world, not to make us suffer and prove our love for him, 
but so that we can find it again in Christ, in its rightful place, in Him. It looked like Jesus was asking a lot of this man, but He really wasn't. He was really asking this man to lay away the weights and sins and encumbrances which would hinder him from receiving that which is infinitely valuable. It feels like Jesus is asking a lot of us sometimes to lose our lives for his sake, to forsake our house or our father or mother or brothers or sisters or children or lands for his name's sake. But he's really asking us to stop stuffing our faces with grass so we can join him at the feast table. Oh, that we would see this, that we would not hold on to the trinkets and treasures of the world and miss out on treasure in heaven. Oh, that we would realize that following Jesus is no hardship. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Even in, in Christ, even our suffering is joyful. But in the world, even our pleasure is painful. In Mark, we see this rich young ruler going away sorrowful. He went away sorrowful because the, the text said that he had great possessions. And so clearly, at least for the time being, he was not able to see what a bargain Jesus was offering him. So he went away sorrowful. And it would be very easy to hear a sermon like this and to likewise go away sorrowful, to feel beaten down and insufficient, even angry and resentful maybe. But I pray that's not how you'll leave today. This rich young ruler went away sorrowful, but you don't have to. I'm not preaching a message this morning of condemnation. I'm preaching a message of invitation. I'm inviting you further up and further in. I'm preaching to myself as much as anyone else. I know what it's like to lose perspective, to lose focus. I know all too well what it's like to be in a spiritual slump where you're just going through the motions. No passion or joy. Brothers and sisters, I'm calling you to a life of joy. I'm calling you to begin to experience heaven on earth. Heaven on earth as you see and savor a good God. A perfect savior. A precious redeemer. A wonderful counselor. A friend who sticks closer than a brother. I'm calling you to lay aside every weight and encumbrance which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before you. Jesus is the sine qua non of eternal life. You cannot have eternal life without Jesus. Why would you want to try? Why would you want the paltry offerings that this world has to offer us with eternal life just as a dessert on the side? I'm calling you to have life and to have it abundantly. For this is what our Savior promised. This is what we were made for. This is what we were redeemed for. And as we live lives full of passion and zeal for the Lord, the world will look on with longing. A longing which only Jesus can satisfy. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our self-focus. Forgive us for our idolatry. Forgive us for our foolishness. Show us Christ. Help us to see Him. Help us to desire Him. Help us to love Him. Help us to want Him so much that we are willing to go through the painful rehabilitation of Your sanctifying work. Strip away our blindness. Save the lost. 
Give us a passion for your glory that would cause us to live all of life in such a way that the world would look and be unable to ignore your greatness. Give us your spirit, we plead. Amen.